0: Exploring the intersection of, of medicine, medicine, sports, and pop culture. This is the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Josh Belfer. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope that you've been enjoying listening to our episode so far. And I hope that you like our introduction music too. I personally think it sounds pretty good. It's catchy, the beat is fun, and the tune is just enjoyable. But I have to admit, even though I like the music, I've never asked myself why I like it. What is it about the sounds, the melodies, the combination of notes that makes the music pleasant to my ears? Today's guest has dedicated her young career to answering questions like this. Dr. Melinda McPherson is a postdoctoral associate in the MIT Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences. She has not only looked at pitch perception and interpretation of sound, but she has set out to answer the question of whether the way we interpret sound has basis in our culture. In other words, do we appreciate sound and the combination of certain notes in the same way as other cultures do? Dr. McPherson has been studying these fascinating questions and was even recognized this year on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list for her great work. I had a riveting discussion with her that certainly changed the way I will be listening to my music. I think you will be equally intrigued. Enjoy our chat. Dr. Melinda McPherson, thanks for joining us on the Doctors Are People Two podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: We like to start all of our discussions here with this question. What is your typical morning routine?
1: Well, I'm uh, most productive in the morning. I'm a morning person. Uh, So I generally try to have a pretty quick morning routine so I can just get working and make the most of that time. So I get up, make my coffee and breakfast, and I often will just take my coffee on the road um, as I walk to work. And um, that's a great way to just get the day started with a bit of fresh air and sort of a pause between home and work. Uh, During quarantine, when I wasn't actually going into the office, going into the lab, I would replace that commute with uh, reading for about 20 minutes just to sort of get centered and then get into the day.
0: Now, in terms of Melinda, the first question, and maybe it's a little bit of my naivety, can you tell us what field is your interest in? Is it the perception of music? Is it how humans understand music? You know, I understand the research you're doing, I think. We'll we'll, we'll find out. Um, But how would you characterize the field that you're in?
1: I study perception. I'm interested in how we perceive the world around us, specifically how we perceive complex sounds like music. And so, it, through my interest in perception, I've done some work in neuroscience where I look at neural responses to sounds. Um, and then a lot of my more recent work has just been looking at, uh, has been using psychophysics. We ask people questions, sort of usually binary questions, like, do you hear it? Do you not hear it? Is it higher or lower? About simple sounds that we can control pretty tightly. And then we can use those measurements to understand how people are perceiving the world around them.
0: We all listen to music. Very few of us you know, make a career out of the music realm or sound and hearing it and the things that you're describing, I think those that do tend to try to go more in the entertainment field and you know become pop stars. But how did you find your way into this field? How did you learn about it? What, what were the different sort of moments in your journey that led you to this field?
1: I've been a musician since I was a very young child. I started playing piano when I was about five. And when I was eight, I started playing violin. And a few years later, I actually found my true passion, which is viola. So I'm, I'm still a violist. I still play regularly. And so I've always just been interested in music and interested in sound. And when, it, when I came to college, I actually was really interested in going into art history. <laughs> and I decided to take a neuroscience class um, in a, sort of as an elective. And I just remember being transfixed by the description of the auditory system and being absolutely dumbfounded that it could possibly work in the way that it does and just being so instantly fascinated by the auditory system. And I actually, just about a week after that class, I went and I switched my major to cognitive science. And about six months later, I started reaching out to different labs. And I happened to find find a lab that was working on musical creativity. And so I actually worked there for three years during my undergraduate uh degree um looking at uh musical creativity in jazz musicians and doing some neuroimaging and I was completely hooked. So ever since then I've just been in this field and it's it's a wonderful combination of uh science and then sort of this long standing passion of mine which is music.
0: Great. And we're going to talk a little bit about your article uh, from a couple of years ago, Perceptual Fusion of Musical Notes by Native Amazonians suggest Universal Representations of Musical Intervals. And you have a great video abstract that I'll link to in our in the description for this episode. But this research really set out to answer the question, does music sound the same or does it sound different to people from different cultures? And you know, we'll talk a little bit about your findings, but how did you decide to study this question? And, and how do you go about you know, figuring out how to find an answer to this question.
1: So I actually had an interesting in to this question ahead of time. So my, my research group, which is um, headed by Josh McDermott at MIT, has been going down to Bolivia for about the last six years, I guess, not the last two years, but years before then, um, to work with this uh, group called the Chimane, who are a remote indigenous population living in the Bo- Amazon basin in Bolivia. And they had done some previous work finding that the chimane do not, uh, prefer consonants to dissonance. So for probably most of the listeners of this podcast, uh, there are certain combinations of notes that sound pleasant and others that sound unpleasant. And it, for many years, almost millennia, going back to Pythagoras, people have thought that this is a universal, that just humans universally like consonants over dissonance. Um, but we, uh, my research group that I'm a part of had previously found this group, the chimane don't actually show this preference. And so my research project came out of that finding where we were curious to follow up, well, if these people don't prefer one to the other, is it because they actually, they can hear the distinction between the two and just don't have a preference because maybe you need exposure to a certain musical system in order to develop that preference? Or potentially, they don't actually perceive that there's that these two different things, constants and dissonance, are distinct categories. And if that's the case, their lack of a preference for one over the other is sort of takes on a bit of a different flavor than if they actually do perceive them as different, and yet still don't have a preference. And so we were trying to kind of follow up on that initial finding and um, see whether what we'd found was actually just a perceptual um, indifference rather than a um, preference indifference.
0: I think one of the interesting things reading the the methods and really the backgrounds is this relationship and kind of the, the mathematical, almost like underlying in terms of the relationship between notes. And so you mentioned in your last answer, but in terms of you know what combinations sound pleasant and not pleasant for us, it's about you know, frequency ratios, music intervals. These were all new terms for me. Can you give a little bit more of an introduction into those relationships?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So many of the sounds that we hear that are most interesting to us, things like speech and things like music, um, are called complex sounds. And what this means is that they're made up of many frequency overtones. And so you'll hear my voice as a specific pitch, but you actually you're, what you're hearing is actually my voice, sort of that, that lowest p- pitch, and then all these integer multiples of that lowest pitch. And those are called overtones or harmonics. And so, for example, the difference between ah and e is actually just the Relative power of those different overtones, and that gives you different timbres between different vowels or different instruments, etc. So, if the the overtone series sort of affects the quality of the sound, and the interesting thing is that there are those overtones are related by different frequency ratios. So, the the second overtone is an octave above, or a doubling, frequency doubling of the first, and then the third, you sort of get a three to two ratio on upward. So the interesting thing about a lot of the consonants and dissonant intervals that we hear in music is that they're actually related by different frequency ratios. So a perfect fifth, um, which is a very common interval in music, consonant interval, uh, the, the frequencies of those two notes are actually related by a three to two integer ratio, so pretty low integer ratio. But if you go to a tritone, which is just one semitone, one sort of step away from a perfect fifth, it's an incredibly jarring interval. It's called the devil's uh, devil's interval, I think, for many years. Um, And that has a much more complicated frequency ratio. So the the two frequencies that or the two pitches that make up that interval have something like a 42 to, I don't know, 37. I'm, I'm forgetting the number, but a very complex frequency ratio between them. And So consonants and dissonant intervals are actually mathematically distinct in that way, and it has to do with this harmonic series that we hear all the time in sounds like speech and sounds like music.
0: It's really interesting. Sort of as a side note, I guess, and maybe this is a little bit outside of the scope of your focus, but in terms of you know, popular culture and music that's popular, do do artists think about that as they're composing these songs? I imagine maybe it's just inherent in terms of the the sounds that people are putting together, that these sounds make sense to put in music.
1: Well, when we're talking about modern musical composition, when when artists sort of these days are, are trying to compose songs, absolutely a lot of the tension and release that we get in music comes from this interplay between consonants and dissonance and sort of resolving dissonances into Kind of the finale of pieces, which are generally pretty consonant and and pleasant to sound. But you might ha- to hear, but you might have some uh, sort of clashes ahead of that that are that raise the tension of the musical piece. Um, but it turns out that's kind of part of our Western musical system that we've grown up with, and that's not that kind of tension and release is not necessarily. And I mean, I think this is still still an open question, but that's not necessarily inherent to how humans must create music if they're creating it.
0: So let's go back to your research. You studied a community in the Amazon in Bolivia. Tell us what you studied and what your findings were.
1: So our, our basic experimental design was quite simple. What we did is we played pairs of notes for individuals, both um, in the Amazon, both human individuals and non-musicians um, located in Boston. And we asked them two questions about these pairs of notes. They were simultaneous pairs of notes. So they hear two notes at the same time. And would either ask them, how much do you like this sound that you're hearing? Um, and they could say, I dislike it a lot, I dislike it a little, I like it a little, or I like it a lot. And we translated this response into chimane. Uh, or they would just be asked, do you hear one sound or two? And so this was sort of the, the addition to previous research. Um, in the second question, there's uh, was trying to get at this issue of what's called fusion, and so fusion is the phenomenon whereby two notes that are played simultaneously are misperceived as a single note, and it's actually been a phenomenon that's been noted back until back to about the 1800s that consonant intervals are more likely to fuse perceptually compared to dissonant intervals. So you're more likely to mistake them for single notes compared to, um, compared to dissonant intervals, and so we were curious would the Chimane actually show fusion that was similar to Western listeners, so listeners in Boston, even though they don't have preference for consonant intervals over dissonant intervals? Because what we find in Western listeners in, in listeners in Boston is that they're more likely to fuse or mistake consonant intervals for a single note compared to distant intervals. So we were wondering if we'd find that same result in the Chimane. And what did you find? <laughs> we actually, we did find the same result. We found that Chimane listeners were just as, uh, basically would fuse just as much as, um, as participants in Boston and their pattern of fusion was actually remarkably similar to, uh, participants in, in Boston. So they would fuse the octave much more than the perfect fifth, much more than the perfect fourth, et cetera. Um, and this pattern was remarkably similar across cultures, even though. Boston listeners consistently preferred the consonant intervals over dissonant, and the Chumani participants didn't show that same preference.
0: And as someone who has an expertise in the field, were you surprised by the results that you found, or did that did you think that was the direction you were going to go in?
1: I think uh, I think it's always this, these results. It's always good to be surprised by your results and then to interrogate them as as deeply as you can of why we might have found this. Um, so so yeah, I, I think these results were certainly surprising. Um, in that we do see a pretty distinct difference between these cultures when we ask them just a different question about the exact same stimulus. However, from the perspective of the fact that listeners do hear the harmonic series and these intervals are related by frequency ratios that you hear in sounds like speech, um, I guess it's sort of it, it means that our Exposure, potentially our exposure to harmonic sounds actually sort of predisposes us to have this phenomenon of fusion. And that is universal because we all are exposed to such harmonic sounds like speech.
0: So, give me the take home. What's the implication when I read your paper and I share your paper? What are the one or two points that you want readers to get out of your research?
1: I think the most important takeaway message is that it seems like our perceptual apparatus for hearing music and understanding music is really. Is, is most likely almost a universal. Most facets of that are probably shared by every human in the world. We, we hear things the same or close to the same, I won't make complete generalizations, <laughs> but we probably hear things very similar to similarly to each other. But how we interpret those is very much determined by the culture that we grew up in. So whether we determine that something it sounds really pleasing and really pleasant. Is not something that's sort of baked into our biology. That's something that we're actually learn through cultural experience. And so these things that can feel so incredibly fundamental, and I mean, music feels so personal when you listen to it, and what f- sounds good to you feels so personal and so, so much like it has to just be the way things, it, things are um, around the world. That's actually, that's sort of an illusion of the fact that we've actually learned this through an ex- our experience and our exposure with a particular musical culture. And so people who actually hear something very similar to us or almost the exact same thing as us um, will interpret those sounds very differently. There's sort of a t- different top-down processing based on our cultural background.
0: I think it's an excellent paper. It really approaches you know, music, something we could all relate to in a manner that I think most people wouldn't think to to study it. So I think uh, it's a fantastic paper to read. It's a really interesting study and conclusions. Having done some medical research and some science research, when you do research projects, and especially, you know, big research projects and papers, tends to lead to more questions and maybe your next point of research. Did that hold true for you?
1: Yes, I'm, I'm incredibly, uh, we were planning on going down and doing a bit more work um, in the Chimane to look at um, sort of one of my, my, my big passions, which is pitch perception. So how we perceive how high or how low sounds are. And we've done some other work with the Chimane showing that they do perceive pitch in similar ways to, to listeners in, the, um, in Boston in, in some respects, but actually are quite different in other respects. So, um, for example, they don't seem to have octave equivalents. So, imagine if you're singing Happy Birthday with a child whose voice is much higher than yours. You would probably sing it at the same, what's called chroma. So, if they're singing, say, an A on a musical scale, you would sing it at, at an A as well, but on an octave lower, so a frequency doubling lower. The Chimani don't seem to to, to do that, they, when you ask them to sing something that's really high in their comfortable range, they'll pick and um, they won't uh, sing it an octave down. So there are some interesting differences in how this group perceives pitch compared to um, how uh, people in Boston perceive pitch. And so I was really curious to go down and look at sort of some implications of, um, of that distinction and some, look a bit more at how, how um, our exposure to different musical systems can change how we perceive how high or how low sounds are. And um, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we haven't had the opportunity to go do that. But I am looking forward to doing that as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a, a great next, next research question. And Melinda, the way I found out about you and have subsequently learned about you is because you were named Forbes 30 Under 30 this year, an incredible honor, a great recognition. When you received the news, what went through your mind?
1: Uh, it, was, it was quite surreal to get that news. Uh, and I think... I just, I really have to give so much credit to all the incredible scientists I've had the opportunities to work, to work alongside. Um, I've only been able to do the science that I've been able to do because I've been supported by, encouraged by, and mentored by some really incredible um, advisors and, and supervisors. And so um, I'm just, I was, I, those were the first people I told, and um, I'm just so lucky to have worked with people who are just incredible scientists and who have pushed me uh, to be better.
0: It's an incredible achievement. Melinda, my final question for you is one we ask of all of our guests. For those in our audience who may be inspired by hearing your conversation with me today and want to go into the field that you're involved in, whether it's someone who just wants to be in the academic world and do research like you do, what advice do you have for them?
1: I think actually just further to my last point, I'll speak more broadly that any young person interested in getting into science should make it their goal to work with kind and smart people who are passionate about doing the science they're doing. I've been incredibly blessed in this regard throughout my career, and I just cannot understate the value of having supportive mentors and colleagues um, as you as you move through your career. Uh, science is very hard, and progress is often non-linear. You can make a lot of progress one month and none for the next six. Um, so, but science is also fundamentally human. So having and um, being surrounded by supportive people can really make that process so much easier. On a practical level, I'll say that it's just incredibly helpful to have a strong math and programming background, no matter what field you're going into. So it's always good to try to get those skills. I, I've learned the hard way um, that it's kind of di- more difficult to pick them up as you go along. <laughs>
0: think that's great advice. Melinda, it's been great talking with you. I appreciate you sharing some insight into your research and I'm excited to see what the future has to hold in terms of your research. We'll certainly be following your career.
1: Thank you so much for having me today. It's been a pleasure.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for joining us on the Doctors Are People Two podcast. I feel like my eyes and ears have been opened up after speaking with Dr. McPherson. The idea that people in different cultures hear sound and music differently is a fascinating concept. The ways in which Dr. McPherson and her team have set out to answer their questions is very unique, and it'll certainly be producing interesting research for years to come. I encourage you to check out Dr. McPherson's research. A link can be found in the show notes for today's episode. I also encourage you to take a look at the video abstract for her study. It provides an engaging, succinct summary of her work. As always, I'd love to hear from you with your thoughts on today's episode. Next time you turn on some music... Will you be thinking about how people from other cultures would appreciate what you're listening to? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Doctors or People Too podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to share it with your friends and family. Follow us on our Instagram page at Doctors or People Too podcast. Do you have a question or a comment on the show? Maybe a guest recommendation? Direct message us on our Instagram page. Until next time, this has been the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Take care.